Welcome to episode 11 of We Are All Americans, conversations about how family stories are passed down from generation to generation and what it means to be American in the context of multiculturalism, immigration, military service, Black Lives Matter, white privilege, and indigeneity. I'm your host, Michelle Jacklis, and I'm here with Monique Mansour in her office at Loyola Marymount University in the Westchester neighborhood of Los Angeles. Welcome, Monique. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor for me to speak to you. Thanks. Um, same here. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to have this conversation? Sure. So I first heard you um, speak about this project at Otis. I was there for a mm. conference, a Community Works Institute conference. And my own background is Iraqi Chaldean. So I was born and raised here in the United States, but I'm full Iraqi Chaldean by heritage. Um, I'm first generation on my father's side, second on my mom's. And what that means is I think most of us who come from a particular ethnic background have a spiel that we, we go to and say when people ask us what that means. Um, and, and Iraqi Chaldean means a minority of Catholics from Iraq. So it's a very ancient group of people. Um, the language that we speak is Aramaic, which is the language Jesus spoke, um, although it is a dying language for sure, and more and more you speak Arabic or don't speak Arabic at all and speak mm -hmm. other languages, but, but that's... Um, yeah, I have to admit, I, I did Google it when you emailed me. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very small minority. So you're... First generation on, you said your father's First generation side, on my father's side. And second on your mom's side. Do you know the story of how their families came here? I do. So my father left Baghdad. So my dad was born and raised in Baghdad, Iraq. He left when he was 18 mm -hmm. in 1977. Then he lived in the UK for a few years, for three years. Um, then he lived in Abu Dhabi for a little under a year. I think it was like nine, ten months and then he moved to Detroit, Michigan. Now, maybe you, you got this from your Googling, too, but um, Detroit, Michigan is the largest populations of Chaldeans outside of the <laughs> Middle East. And um, the reason for that, actually, this is a perfect segue because this goes into my mom's immigration okay. story. My mom's grandfather, my great-grandfather, was considered one of the first Chaldeans to come to the States. So he came around, like, 1906 through Ellis Island in New York. Okay. That's where my... Great grandparents came through too. through Ellis Island, and then he heard that there was work in Detroit in the auto industry. So he um, worked worked somewhere to get enough money to travel to Detroit, and then once he was in Detroit, secured a job in the auto industry, and then sent word back to Iraq, like, "Hey, there's there's jobs here. Come on over." And that's how the Chaldean community in Detroit came to be. So, so my dad eventually made his way to Detroit, and he met my mom and they married and then my dad said to my mom it's way too cold here we gotta move and then they moved to california <laughs> and so that's why yeah and so that's why i was born and raised here and my younger brother too my older sister was born in detroit but they moved here when she was two mm. so we've lived in california for a long time and i'm very grateful to be a native californian <laughs> why Oh, gosh. Um, there's there's a lot of things about this state that I appreciate, just the progressive nature of our laws and legislation, the diversity for sure. Although I did not grow up in a super diverse area, which I'm sure we'll 
Mm-hmm. I'm sh- I am happy to share those experiences with you. But um, now living here in Los Angeles, it's just amazing the diversity and um, the different you know people you meet on a daily basis and there's there's nothing quite like that so yeah so we're in you just you didn't grow up in a diverse neighborhood yeah was that in the suburb of los angeles so i was i was born in san diego which was which was diverse where i was born um then we moved to an area of orange county mission viejo area uh when i was around nine and so i spent my um most of my formative years there, nine to to eighteen, and that that area was was not diverse. Yeah. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I remember people talked about Orange County as beyond the Orange Curtain. Oh right, right, yeah. Uh-huh. And that there was a big cultural shift when for sure across the Iron Curtain. Yeah, I mean, even for me to this day, when I go visit my parents from here, I'm like, oh wow, it's it's so different. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was uh, it was that was interesting for sure. Growing up in that neighborhood, looking how I look, I was I definitely remember being like one of the only students in my school with black hair and tan skin, and um, you know always got questions about that and uh, curly hair too. I remember when I was in high school, straight hair was all the the rage. <laughs> and people would always ask me, oh, are you going to straighten your hair? Or, you know, you'd look really good if you straighten your hair. And I got a lot, a lot of that. Yeah. Or dye your hair, too. Are you going to dye your hair? And Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the population in Orange County is majority white? I So it's, I, mean, I should I, look this up. I thought that it would mm-hmm. be more, that there'd still be at least Latinos there. So, okay, Orange County is an interesting place because there are parts that are very diverse. Yeah. Um, so north North Orange County, so areas like Westminster. As you get closer um, to L.A. Yeah, as you get closer to L.A., for sure, are more diverse. But oh. South Orange County, like Mission Viejo, Rancho Santa Margarita, Lake Forest, San Clemente, Laguna Beach, yeah. Laguna Niguel, not not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you were to find more minorities there, it would be – um, Latinos, Latinas, but Middle Easterns, not too many. There are some Persians there. So people would think a lot of time that it was Persian. Mm-hmm. And when I would say I was Iraqi, they, they thought it was like the same thing. But I'm like, no, they're, they're two different countries with different languages. Yeah. Um, wow. But no, it, it was very, very white. Yeah. And still to this day, when I, when I go visit, I'm, I'm always surprised how, how white it is. You hinted at this a little bit. Yeah. Um, did you experience harassment or discrimination because of your race and ethnicity? And yeah, I did. Um, there's one instance in particular that was um, pretty traumatic for me. Mm-hmm. That I, to be honest with you, like just recently I've really sort of worked through. Um, and this happened right after 9-11. It was the day after 9-11. It was September 12th. Mm-hmm. I was in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny because there's a Maya Angela quote. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's something to the extent of you'll forget what people did, you'll forget what people said, but you'll never forget how they made you feel. Yeah. And that's very true in this case because to this day, I don't remember what this student said to me. I, I know he he threatened my life and he he threatened my I think he threatened my dad's life too or my family's life it, like it wasn't just mine it was mm. like either my dad or my family's life 
because I was of Middle Eastern heritage. And he, um, I remember he, I do remember he asked me where I was from. And then I told him where where mm-hmm. I was from, and that's an interesting thing too because I, I get asked where I'm from all the and time. And you could just say, I, "Yeah, I could, I could." And you know what? Now I do. Now today, <laughs> as a 28 year old, I do do that. Um, but then, you know, I just I knew what they were what they were looking for, and I just yeah. gave it to them out of you know out of fear. And uh, and then he used that, and yeah, he threatened my life, and um, he did end up getting suspended. Um, but it was, um, that was a really tough, tough thing for me to go through, especially as, as an 11 year old, like middle school was hard to begin with. Yeah. And I feel like it's also when we are figuring out who we are and starting to even be aware of identity issues. Yes. That, yeah, I, I was teaching at Otis at the time I remember and, um, really had this gut feeling that anybody in this country who wasn't a white Christian was kind of screwed. Mm-hmm. A white heterosexual Christian. Mm-hmm. I just sort of had this gut feeling like they're going to, this is their chance, the government's mm-hmm. chance to really just make it hard yeah. for anybody that doesn't fit that mold. the profile or yeah. the mold that they, that's already in power. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And since that instance, there was many more times where like I remember my family and I went on a European vacation and my dad's they held him aside after reading his passport and they were questioning him and then I remember a TSA officer asked me is that really your dad because you can you can let us know if if he's not your dad yeah yeah and I was um, 16 when that happened and yeah lots of really weird weird situations I remember too it's, uh, one time I was with my siblings in an elevator and we were all teens at that point we weren't young or anything and I remember this one lady looked at us and we all have tan skin and dark hair and she goes oh are you the children of the janitorial staff oh <laughs> and I was just like like I've had yeah I've had really bizarre instances of yeah racial profiling but um but it was at its at its heyday for sure after 9-11 in the years after 9-11 yeah. and do you feel like it's chilled a little bit or is it I do. still bad? I do. I definitely do. Especially like living here in LA. It's been a lot better. But but to this day, Michelle, if I'm honest with you, to this day, I'm hard pressed to go a week without getting asked where I'm from. Like that. Even here in LA, I get that mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. time. And I will say like 99% of the time, it's just out of general gen, genuine interest and curiosity. Yeah. And I'm like more than happy to... But it share, has but become a really loaded question. It totally, totally, yeah. yeah. Because what that means is like, you're a different type of American than me, right? Like it's an immediate, yeah, separation or the assumption that you must not be from here, right? Or you're not one of us, right? Whatever that's supposed mm-hmm. to mean, yeah. yeah. So I still will get that, and then, but nowadays, now I when I get that question, I immediately ask people where they're from after. Good. Because yeah. I'm like, you know, two. It takes two to tango, and two. I play hot potato. I just like throw it back. You yeah. Know? Um, and then people usually are surprised when I. They're like, I oh, feel like yeah. I learned that it must have been like sixth grade. I think it was sixth grade. I, we just moved from New York to Florida. We're in a new middle school, and there was like a day where we were supposed to bring our cultural foods uh-huh. to class uh-huh. and to talk about where we were from. 
and Habib Yunus, I still remember this kid's name, when they asked, you know, where are you from? And he said, New Jersey. Uh-huh. And everybody was like, huh? Yeah. And he was like, what? I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> and it was, so I felt like right away, it was kind of nice to be at that age and be like, yeah, he's from New Jersey. Who cares that his yeah. name is Habib Yunus? He's from New, New Jersey. New Jersey, Yeah. Yeah, because I technically could say I'm from San Diego. That's where yeah. I'm from, right? Uh, but then, it, then it, you know what's coming next. Now you know what's going on. No, I mean, like your cultural your background. Cultural but in yeah. some ways, that it sort of puts it back on the asker. To yeah. Think about why are they asking mm-hmm. that question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I do get that a lot. Um, mm. And yeah, and I, I, it's actually interesting for me too because I'm. I have the darkest coloring of, of my siblings and of mm. everyone in my family. So even within my own family, I get asked that more than they do. Like, I remember my sister called me a couple of weeks ago, and she was like, somebody, when I was checking out, the cashier asked me where I was from, and I was just so irritated. And I was like, oh, that's interesting that you're so upset by that because I, I get asked that all the time. <laughs> but she just doesn't get it as often as I do. Yeah. Wow. Is your family in touch with other relatives still in Iraq? Um, mo- I, they are all out, actually. Oh, so everyone's okay. out, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the majority of them are actually in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a f- some of them are here in California, but the majority are in Michigan on both sides of my family, mm-hmm. my mother's and my father's. I know you talked about why your, when your grand, was grandfather or great-grandfather? Great-grandfather. Great-grandfather came, did... Beyond wanting to go to Detroit for work, did did your family have reasons? What were the reasons for wanting to leave Iraq? Leave Iraq, and yeah. Come to the U.S. It was more so economic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, Chaldeans, though, I mean, historically have you know have been more oppressed. Um, mm-hmm. But my dad always shared. So my dad grew up during the regime of Saddam Hussein, and my dad always said, and people don't know this. Um, that Saddam was secular as, mm. as a dictator. He mm. didn't want the different religious groups fighting or feuding. And so during, so Saddam was a dictator, right? Like for sure. But there wasn't much religious strife while mm. he was in power, which I think is interesting because a lot of people don't realize that or they know that. Yeah. They don't think about that. Um, but my dad always said he grew up going to his Muslim friend's house for Eid and they would come to his house for Christmas and mm. there was um, there was relative peace amongst the the ethnic minorities and different religious groups but but historically Chaldeans for sure have been um, more more oppressed but I, the reasons were more so economic um, mm. he came from a, a small village in in Iraq and you know means to make money were not as um, plentiful as it as it were mm-hmm. was in Detroit. Did they have ideas about the American Dream or yeah those kinds of hopes? I mean, my family's story is a little different because they also left persecution, but on my mom's side, they're all Ashkenazi Jews, mm-hmm. so they left Eastern Europe um, during the late eighteen hundreds through the end of World War Two, right? Um, and I and some didn't get out, and some did. But I think there is still that hope from those generations. Yeah. Different the different time periods of people coming with this idea that like you yeah. can make it here. Make it here. You yeah. can buy a house, you can have educate your family. Yep. 
Yeah, for sure. Middle class life, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. I know for my dad, for sure, he had those notions in his mind. Like he always told us growing up that he thought of the United States as the land of milk and honey. Mm -hmm. And once he came here, you know, things would be, yeah, it'd be easy to get a job and get educated and, and all of that. Does he still feel that way? No. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't think so. Um, yeah. And I mean, I mean, there's plenty of research too, right? That shows that, um, that upward mobility that was once Mm -hmm. the American dream is harder and harder and harder to reach. Um, so no, I don't think, I mean, I don't think it was, like, the advertisement of the United States, I don't think is as advertised for, for many, many immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Um, well, I, I think there's just this idea that, I mean, so, okay, so I, I guess I should, I lived in Malta for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, a small Mediterranean island in the Mediterranean. And I was there on a Fulbright scholarship. I was teaching English. And this relates to, to all that because I remember a lot of Maltese would talk to me and they they just thought that like y- you were taken care of and you were secure and you could make a lot of money in the United States and I would tell mm-hmm. them like look we like we don't have health insurance so if you move to the United States and you like hurt yourself like you and you break your leg and you go to the hospital like you have to pay a lot of money out of pocket if you don't and like that they didn't understand that because mm-hmm. there's universal health care over there so things like that like just basic safety nets that um that can help you on your way to making it we just you know it's not we don't have that here right. um i think for the chaldeans it, it really helped having people uh who came here and then you have a community, right? Cause I know the Chalde- the Chaldean community is very tight knit. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very, you know, we help one another out. And so I think that's, that's helpful. But if you don't have that, I think it can be incredibly, yeah. incredibly difficult. I mean, it's, it makes sense why immigrant groups would move to certain neighborhoods. neighborhoods yeah. For the, you know, that's why the Lower East Side in New York was, had a lot of Jews, a lot of Chinese. Like mm-hmm. You can help one another out. You find yeah. people with your same language and culture, and you feel a little more at home and and supported. Yeah, yeah. supported for sure. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Uh huh. What do you think about currently what's happening in the U.S. and immigration policies? Yeah, that is. Um, I mean, it's really disheartening to see what's going on. When that travel ban first came out, Mm. I was in Malta again, and that was quite the experience because Iraq was on that list uh, when it first came out. And so um, I couldn't help but think about, you know, my own family, my own background. And I actually had a lot of Maltese people come up to me, and my dad was coming. My parents were coming to visit me for Easter in Malta. Mm. And everyone emailed me and reached out to me, and they're like, oh, can your dad not come now? Like, can he not travel? Because they were worried, yeah. And I was actually working with refugees in in Malta, and I had a student who was Somalian. Mm. And I was the first American she had ever met. And she was set to actually go to the States on a refugee visa, and then the travel ban came out, and Somalia was on the list, and then everything came to a halt. And she asked me, she was like, explain this, um, 
because she thought I knew as an American, like, why? And I didn't know what to say to her. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't say to her, it's because you're Muslim, right? Because that's, that's the reason. Um, Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that's the reason. But I, I didn't know how to explain it to her. And I, I don't know what ended up happening to her. I don't know if she's still in Malta. I don't know. But it was really disheartening because I was seeing the direct effects of it abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially with refugees, with a very vulnerable population. And um, that was really tough. That was really tough. And uh, especially because I was on a Fulbright, right? I was, here I was, like, representing the United States. Yeah. Right when, um, right when Donald Trump got inaugurated. And it was really hard to come to terms with with all of that and um people asking me questions how how did this happen why it happened and I just didn't have answers because I was trying to figure it out just like everyone else I think here living in LA I had no idea that it would come to this um yeah I remember being really shocked at when the election just happened mm -hmm. and the Otis student population is really really diverse Mm -hmm. the um, most of the time in my classes, it's, you know, I had one semester, I think we figured out there were like 15 students and 11 different languages spoken. And so we have a lot of international students. And I remember one that fall when, when the election results happened, a Chinese national student said, was crying in class. And she was like, what if, can he revoke my student mm. visa? And at the time, I was like, of course not. No, right. like this, that was put in place before he was in power. And right. that's got its own expiration date. There's no way that that can be affected. And then when the travel ban happened the next semester, I just felt so heartbroken and naive. And, oh, my God, I can't believe I tried to reassure the student and I was wrong. And this can happen. Yeah. It's really devastating. Really devastating, for sure. Yeah, really devastating, and um, yeah, especially working with with the refugees and just seeing first, hearing firsthand what they went through and and how they just wanted a second shot at life and would yeah. just do anything to just be able to have raise their family in a safe environment and you know start again and and then the fact that she just got denied and, and this person in particular like her husband was murdered in front of her her child's mm. eye was stabbed in front of her she had came to Malta on a boat on her own and left her children with her mother just to see if she if she could make it and then she could bring the rest of her family there and then and then for her to just not be able to come to the states because of this you know travel ban i yeah going through all of that ab- abroad to where i couldn't have certain friends and family to like be there to support me and talk to mm. I mean of course I did it over the phone and Skype but it just wasn't the same being in another yeah. another place and and again having to field questions all the time about what was happening what was going on because what I wish people knew is that I remember when the election results came out in November the next day in my staff room in Malta it was silent it was somber people were crying and it's like I wonder if Americans knew how impactful our elections are around the world in a small Mm. island like malta you know what i mean yeah um that you were the only american in this room and everybody else is still upset yeah Mm -hmm. yeah wow over the election in in my country it wasn't their election right but Mm -hmm. they were 
they were devastated. But I also heard other places, my sister lives in India, Mm -hmm. and I heard this from her and also from some of my Chinese students that um, in some of those countries, they celebrated the election, but Mm -hmm. not out of, yes, this will be good for America, but more, finally, the fall of this empire is going to happen. Oh, interesting. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Like the fall of the American empire. Yeah. In our place in the world. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, That's really interesting. I I did not witness that. There were some... Maltese who would come up to me and say, "We, I'd like a Trump here in Malta to get these refugees out. Wow. And yeah. I did have a few of those. Um, but it, it was more so devastation. Mm. Um, more so devastation. And not only was, did I experience the American election while I was abroad, it was also the British election, the French election, and the mm. Malta, Malta had their own election too. So by the time I came home, I was just like, we're, I was electioned out because (laughs) it's a lot (laughs) yeah what do you think it means to be an American that's a great question um so to me and to be an American is to celebrate um the different cultural backgrounds that we all come from the Native American backgrounds that we come from and to find the commonality in, in our differences in our backgrounds and to make something greater from, from all of that and to, mm. to build a place where we can celebrate all of those wonderful things and work towards um, a, a united goal. Yeah, that's what it means to me. What are you most fearful about and what are you most hopeful for? Uh, in terms of this just in terms of in like in general I mean it could be in terms of all these topics but it could yeah. also just be in general so what am I most fearful for and what am I most hopeful of yeah. is that that was the question yeah. I'm most fearful of people believing that we're more different than we are similar mm. and I, I'm actually most fearful of people losing their compassion and empathy and what I mean by that is uh, so I teach first year students mm-hmm. here at Loyola Marymount University the few that I've had who are Trump supporters um, have they have I've seen it's just a loss of compassion mm. um, and I think that can be solved by going and talking to people of of the certain group. And I actually implement community-based learning in my Mm -hmm. class. Um, And I have seen firsthand how that can change things around because it's much harder to hate someone when you know them and when you're talking to them and when you're joking with them and when you're eating together. Um, But I'm always shocked, though, to see um, just the – the loss of compassion and empathy. So I, I hope that people can dig down deep inside themselves and remember that it's compassion and empathy that we all crave as mm-hmm. humans. We're all mm-hmm. broken people at the end of the day, and it's that compassion and empathy that can lift us up. What I'm most hopeful for is I do think I do think the future is bright. Mm-hmm. I do. I really do. I do think that even though this is all 
not what many of us envisioned. Um, I think the next wave is going to be better and greater than we think it is. I think this has awakened um, the spirits in a lot of people, and especially my generation, the millennial generation. And mm. I do think it's going to be brighter, but we're going to have to weather the storm. Yeah. Is there anything else you can think of you want to talk about that we haven't already yeah, sure. I'd like to talk about race as a societal construct a little bit. Good, yeah. Because um, when I, again, this goes back to Malta. So Malta was, in a lot of ways, very enlightening for me um, because when I was in Malta, I looked Maltese. Mm-hmm. Um, people thought I was Maltese and, and less. So the teachers I worked with at my schools, they knew I was American, of course, because you know, they knew that they were going to have a Fulbright scholar who was American. But in my everyday living, when I went to the grocery store, when I, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. went out for fun, people thought I was Maltese. And when they heard me speak, even though my accent is is American, they thought I was Maltese, grew up abroad, and then came back, because that was fairly Mm -hmm. common. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of Maltese who grew up in Australia or the UK or Canada and came back to the island. And so it was the first time in my life first time ever where I blended in Mm. and I realized what it felt like to be a white person here Mm. and it Mm. was awesome (laughs) (laughs) it was it was so nice like I didn't have to say where I was from unless I wanted to yeah and that was it was just incredible like I could have conversations with people and relationships with people and then I could say three months in hey I'm actually American and they'd be like what like oh wow I had no idea and I, it was my choice the ball was in my court yeah and that was just something I had never ever ever experienced and um yeah I remember too when I before I left I in Malta there's all these stationery stores where you go to make copies of mm-hmm. things and it's just common over there and so there was this the stationery store by my apartment was called Glitter Stationery. And the last time I went in there, I told the shop owner, I was like, oh, I'm leaving to go back to the to the States. Like, thanks so much. It was always nice running into you. And she was like, oh, okay, but I'll see you when you get back. And I was like, no, no, I'm from, I'm from the States. And she was like, oh, I had no idea. I thought you were, I thought you were Maltese. And it was just like so funny to, to have that for a year. Um, and to Monique, feel, yeah. To feel like you belong to feel like I belonged in, uh, yeah, to feel like I belonged in, you know what, it was just like having to, like when people ask me where I'm from here, it's, it's just like exhausting. It's just I like an exhausting, yeah. and I just didn't experience that over there. Like it was, yeah, it was very freeing. It's like one la- la- layer of burden Off. peeled away that you don't have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was so freeing. And um, yeah, and I remember when I would tell the Maltese there, like, oh, in the States, like, I'm not considered white. And also, being Middle Eastern is very interesting because I'm, con- for statistical purposes, white includes the yes. Middle East. Yeah. But going about my daily life, no one would consider me white. So it's a really strange place for Middle Eastern Americans to be in because, on the one hand, we're considered white on paper, mm-hmm. but um, we don't always get the privileges associated with with what white is perceived to look like yes. in, in society yes. and especially like our last names and stuff like that you know that's not perceived to be There's white such a it, and I feel like race and cultural identity have so much to do with 
this strange combination of how you perceive yourself yeah. and how others perceive you. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. Totally. Yeah. And so I was a sociology major in undergrad and, you know, you're taught early on as a social student that race is a societal construct. And I was like, okay, yeah, it totally makes sense. But I didn't really know what that meant until I lived. Yeah, until I experienced it. And mm. um, and so I think that's that's really interesting how, yeah, yeah. Like here, here I think I'm like so, my coloring is so dark and over there it wasn't like in the least yeah (laughs) yeah it's such a strange I mean I'm also like I've always been really aware of how my ancestors weren't always considered white Mm -hmm. Jews were not white right right Mm -hmm. at a certain point in time I don't know when we became white but yeah we weren't for a long Long time time. and then Mm -hmm. but then I get I also understand that sense of and I haven't experienced it yet from what you described but I feel that otherness when, particularly when we come around the time of the holidays, because I don't look Jewish. I have a French Canadian last name name from my dad's side, which is Catholic and French Canadian. Oh, got it. Mm -hmm. And so I get, I'm constantly, I feel that exhaustion that you described when everyone's like are you ready for christmas Mm. what are you doing for easter and i'm like i don't celebrate it and it's that i almost feel like i have to be like assert my otherness because no one thinks ah everyone thinks i pass yeah 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 that's how i felt in malta connected to that Mm -hmm. to the identity that they think i am right I don't feel totally connected to the Jewish identity either because I am not religious, I'm atheist, and I didn't finish my bat mitzvah and all, you know, (laughs) I'm not really involved in the Jewish community, but at the same time, there's like that, Uh I understand that, like, that would be really nice to be in a place where you, where like, no one asks. And, no one asks, yeah. And, or you don't feel like they're making assumptions different no. than who you are. Right, right. That's, yeah. Because yeah, even, you know, here in the States, like, if I meet someone new, even if they don't ask me right away where I'm from, I know it's, it's going to come. come. Yeah, yeah, I know it's going to come at some point. Yeah. But over there, I didn't, like, it never came up unless I wanted to assert my other yes. And your would your name be common? Yes, so that's Malta, another thing. So it's, like, not a big deal. So Monique, there's a ton of, so it's funny because here, Monique isn't that common. It's not uncommon but like I've only met like maybe a handful of Moniques in my life here mm. um over there in Malta like there were so many Moniques it oh, was wow. so funny um Mansoor wasn't like that common I, I don't think I met another Mansoor but I don't think they thought anything of it really yeah. um but Monique was very very common there and mm. so yeah I could it was so nice I could get by very easily and it's very different here yeah very different here (laughs) i i just feel like this country's never going to resolve the race issue just because of the founding of it was so predicated on racial violence that i just don't really know how we get over that trauma and sort through it all yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean in a lot of ways this country was founded on on you know racism um but yeah I I mean yeah I don't know it is a depressing thought isn't it for sure Mm -hmm. it is a depressing thought for sure and I think 
why I love living in a place in LA is even though we're not perfect and we have our own history of problems, I do think at least speaking from today's perspective, it, it is nice how diverse it is. And, um, actually at that conference that we first met at, um, Mm. or that I saw you at, there was, um, a woman from Dallas there and she was from El Salvador. And she said to me, she was like, is LA always like this? And I was said, what do you, what do you mean? Like elaborate on that. And she was like, well, I just feel like I'm like welcomed here and appreciated and like people don't like look at me differently and Mm -hmm. I was like oh yeah in that case yes like yes um it's the beauty of of living here yeah I mean it's one of the reasons why I'm like would want to stay here I'm you know I have Mm -hmm. a three and a half year old son I want to raise him here I want to love that his preschool is got kids from all backgrounds Uh uh-huh uh-huh families who speak all different languages and he's just a part of that and it's not it's like a non-issue mm-hmm. yeah it's awesome yeah yeah that's so awesome I wish I would have grown up <laughs> with that yeah like, I did a little bit I mean in in where we lived in New York I mean because I was in Buffalo which is western New York it was not that diverse in the suburb town that I lived in and mm-hmm. we were only one or two Jewish families in my school and I remember like one black student and it was sort of like a big deal when we had a black student oh wow everybody's like whoa oh my gosh like more like excited Excited. yeah yeah freaked out and but in south florida where we moved when i was 11 it was much more diverse um but still different than la and i think because i was talking to someone else about this recently like i just think that we always have this joke that South Florida is south of the south mm. because everybody is the the joke was always everybody's a New York Jew or they're Cuban. Okay, yeah. It's obviously like it's way more diverse than that, but yeah. it's very um it doesn't feel the same as what you think of as like the deep south with big racial divides, but it's still there. Uh-huh. And it's it's just maybe a little more subtle. Yeah. So I've been thinking about that a lot the last few times I went home to visit family, like how there's a there's a diversity there, but it doesn't feel as inclusive mm-hmm. as Los Angeles mm-hmm. feels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I totally understand what you mean by that. So San Diego is another community that has a large population of Chaldeans. I didn't mention mm. that before. So that's why I was born there because there, mm. there's another small, small, much smaller than the Metro Detroit so your area. Your parents were like, Detroit's too cold. Where else are our people? <laughs> San Diego. Exactly. So we went to San Diego first. Um, and I recently went back there with my writing partner. I have a writing partner and we're working on a novel together. Actually, and it, it um, features Chaldeans. Mm. And so I, t- I took her to this restaurant there in um, El Cajon is the name of the city where a lot of the Chaldeans live in mm. East County, San Diego. And she talked to me afterwards and she said, I noticed like everyone in there was Chaldean in the restaurant. And I said, you know what? You're, you're right. It's, it's more segregated over mm. there. Like the, the Chaldeans are, you know, to themselves and, the, and the, each group is like, they're living together in the same area, but to themselves. They're not interacting. They're not in the interacting, way. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like multicultural versus intercultural, you know? Like, it's like... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I know what that feels like for sure. I know what that... And even when I lived in Malta, I... The refugees, it was the same thing. Like, there was a lot of refugees on the island, but they were definitely separate from the Maltese majority. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
yeah, there was a lot of um, unfortunately racist attitudes towards towards them, and um, yeah, the the refugee crisis that we have going on um, in the Middle East and Europe is just yeah, it's astounding when you know I got to see a little bit of it firsthand, and mm. I, as an American, as an American before I went there, I thought that most of the refugees were Syrian because that's what we hear is like Syrian refugees. But mm-hmm. that's not the case at all. It's Somalia, Eritrea, yeah. Ethiopia. Yeah. Um, but we don't hear, yeah, we don't hear that so much. Have you seen the Ai Weiwei film, Human Flow? No, no, I have not. Um, do you know his work? He's a no. Chinese artist um, who is kind of notorious for the Chinese government arresting him and shutting oh, him down. Okay. I think his studio just got raided and demolished recently. Oh, wow. But he made this documentary. All of his work is political and very critical, and um, he made this documentary, Human Flow. I think Amazon produced it. Okay. It's either Amazon or Netflix, so you can find it online. But I saw it at the Hammer Museum, and it is you really. it really just shows you firsthand... And so my experience obviously is a mediated experience of it, but to see that, you know, boats coming and rafts coming and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what people go through to get there, it made me really think about any little want or desire I have for more, for me to think like, oh, our apartment is too small and mm. we're struggling financially. Mm. Yeah. Living in Los Angeles is too expensive. But to then see, like, what... Right. But I'm not living in a tent with my child yeah. strapped to my back right. and yeah. carrying my belongings with me, everything mm-hmm. I own with me. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a, it's, it really made me realize how privileged I am being here and, and what I have that yeah. others don't have. And it connected me to, I think, also just my ancestors thinking about, yeah. like, what did they risk to leave yeah. Russia and Austria and all the other Eastern European countries? countries. Borders kept changing. Nobody really agrees where they're all from. Well, yeah. But to like to risk all of that to leaving come. your whole life behind, all, leaving family members behind, just to have maybe a chance of a better life. Totally for me too, and I will say like I've things that used to bother me before just don't bother me as much anymore because it's like in the scheme of things a lot of our problems are really non-problems we just make them into problems yeah um and i learned that very quickly after speaking with refugees and talking with them and teaching with them that okay yeah like i our lives yeah yeah our lives are pretty good yeah for sure yeah well, this has been a really good conversation. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's yeah. been great to get to know you and to hear more of your story. Thank you yeah. so much, Monique. Thank you, Michelle. This was a pleasure. Yeah. Great. Thank you for what you're doing, too, to bring to bring these stories to light.